Um, my name is Keith Banks. I'm president of U.S. Trust, and I'm delighted to have all of you join us tonight, which um, I think you'll find to be a terrific discussion with a uh, great group of, of panelists. You know, we're here in one of the most beautiful locations, certainly in this country, and uh, what, what better place and what better forum to talk about one of our most important natural resources, and, and that is water. And we've assembled, I think, a great panel to have that dialogue. I hope as you've uh, traveled around this week and you've seen the, um, the U.S. Trust water stations, you, uh, you had a chance to uh, enjoy some of that water in our, our U.S. Trust um, um, containers. But more importantly, we try to share with you some important facts about water and its importance as a, as a natural resource to us. Let me just share a couple of facts, and there's so many to be had, but here, here are just a few. Uh, water scarcity affects one in three people across the world. Water regulates the, the Earth's temperature. It takes 39,000 gallons of water to make a car and its four tires, and nine gallons to process a single can uh, of fruits or vegetables. If all the world's water fit into a bucket, just one teaspoon of that water would be, actually be drinkable fresh water. Pretty scary numbers. So there's no debate that water uh, is, is of utmost urgency right now, and we really need to be focused on it and, and thinking about it. So to look at this issue, um, we've got a great panel, and I'm going to turn it over in a moment to Ann Finucan, uh, one of my colleagues. Anne, uh, who is with Bank of America, is our global strategy and marketing officer. But also, Anne is a, a leading advocate for the ideal idea that corporations um, and leaders in corporations have both the opportunity as well as the responsibility to bring about positive change. And she's been a huge advocate of that within our organization at U.S. Trust. And also, as chairperson of Bank of America's Environmental Council, oversees $20 billion uh, an effort to, uh, to really address climate change. So she's a perfect person to moderate this panel. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Ann Finucan. Ann? Thank you. Thank you, Keith. Well, um, clearly, uh, whether you saw our notations at the water coolers, et cetera, or not, you know that uh, water and its availability is something none of us can ignore. And we just have a wonderful panel here tonight. Uh, there was a statistic that I just read, um, and many of you have probably read the same thing, but cities in Asia are expanding at a rate of 100,000 people per day. That's the fastest rate of urbanization the world has ever known, and it's putting a strain, among other things, on water and its availability and its delivery systems. And uh, lest we think this is a emerging markets problem, we have issues here in the U.S. Any one of us uh, could go home and you're, you're told what days you can water your lawn or um, uh, your children are, are returning from school, luckily now being more informed about sources of water and, and the lack of water. So, and we have ourselves so many outdated systems in, in terms of water delivery. So it is a global issue and full of problems, but there are solutions too. So um, I'm going to introduce the panel just to give you a sense of how the, the flow will be. We'll talk a little bit about the problems. The second part will be about some of the solutions that our uh, panelists see. 
and then we're going to open it up to your questions uh, with the microphone over here. So um, if you can bear with me for a minute, I'll make a few introductions and then we'll get on with it. So uh, right to my right um, is uh, Joe Quinlan. He's the Chief Market Strategist for U.S. Trust. He's a leader in recognizing the major impact and the financial and geo uh, geopolitical impact on the global economy, and he's written extensively on the need to invest in and improve particularly our water infrastructure. So thank you for being with, with us, Joe. Uh, Sylvia Earle, I, I love the, uh, what, uh, I will tell you who she is, and then I, I love this little um, factoid about Sylvia. <laughs> she is one of the great, she has one of the greatest job titles you can imagine. Explorer in Residence for the National Geographic Society. Right. <laughs> Sylvia is a world-renowned um, marine biologist, and um, she has been called, quote, ambassador of the world's oceans by the Academy of Achievement. But uh, we spoke earlier, and she has had more than 60 expeditions um, uh, and led more than 60 expeditions, but she confirmed for me that she has more, had more than 6,500 uh, hours underwater. Wow. So among her, among her honors, she's received the 2009 TED Prize for her proposal to establish a global network of marine protected areas. So this will be very relevant to the discussion tonight. And then finally, Hugh Grant, is Chief Executive Officer of the Monsanto Company, one of the world's leading agricultural and biotechnology companies. Hugh is a leading proponent of finding better and smarter ways to use water in agriculture. In 2009, uh, under his watch, Monsanto opened the Water Utilization Learning Center in Nebraska, finding ways to maintain or increase uh, crop production while reducing the use of water. And in 2009, Barron's named him one of the uh, world's 30 top and most respected CEOs. So it's a, uh, a wonderful uh, panel, and thank you for being with us. So let's begin by talking about uh, the challenge, if, uh, if we may. And Joe, I'm going to start with you. I wondered if you could sort of frame up for us some of the, um, uh, the geographic issues, the economic issues, and um, how we should think about it from an economic point of view, water. I mean, I think you know, it's, it's one of the greatest untold stories out there, the, the water scarcity. And if you travel the world, you see it. But I would say here at home, how many people know their water bill? I mean, we know the gas, well, more than I thought, because I don't. Um, and in many parts of Europe, they don't have water meters. I mean, no one really knows. And then the key point is that water is a precious commodity and a resource that's underpriced. And when it's underpriced, we overuse it and we underinvest in, this, in this, this resource that we have. So I think that's kind of the rub of the matter right now. And right now in the Middle East, Africa, there's parts of the United States where without water, there's no growth, or you're gonna see scarcity, you're gonna see immigration, migration of folks. And ultimately some folks, and this is, you know, I don't wanna to go to the deep end so early, but there could be wars over water. And then there's tensions between India and China over a glacier in the Himalayas. So this is a big issue, and I think it hasn't been, the story is not out there, but it slowly but surely will be. But, and I urge you, if you haven't, if you don't have the National Geographic issue for April, it was a classic. Um, go to the library if you have one, if it's still open, and look at it if you don't. But it, it's devoted to water, and it should be required reading for everyone, your, your children, yourselves, and, and your family. And it really, it's a stunning you know, portrait of what, what's happening. So I think, 
And long and short is that we're going to recognize very quickly, very shortly, that this precious commodity is not being used appropriately. It's not priced appropriately. And the upside and the opportunities, we're probably looking at $200 billion a year globally in investments once we wake up to how precious this is, this commodity. So there's a huge boom, infrastructure boom, in spending coming. We can talk more about the opportunities, but that's kind of where we're at right now. Thanks. Well, you raised uh, National Geographic, and Sylvia, we will be spending a lot of our time on fresh water and um, access to it and the scarcity of it, but we would be um, remiss if we didn't talk about the, the obvious issue with the Gulf and marine life, and there isn't any, as we watch the, the news of the uh, spurting oil, we're also seeing the uh, marine life, and uh, it, it's just, it's depressing, it's incredible, and I think none of us really have a sense of what does it really mean uh, in the longer term. Can you speak a little bit about that for us? I can. I'll start, though, with the broader topic of the ocean and answering what's the worth of water, a cool drink, but let's start with water generally, with a more basic question. What's your life worth? <laughs> because of it, one thing that life requires is water. Anybody who's involved with looking for life elsewhere in the universe starts first by asking, where's the water? And this planet is blessed with a lot of it, liquid water. There's water elsewhere in our solar system, elsewhere in the universe, but nowhere is there anything that has anything approaching what we have here, this blue planet, an ocean. It's where 97% of Earth's water is. The 3% that remains, 97% of it is locked up as polar ice. So a tiny fraction of the fresh water, or of all the Earth's water, is fresh water that's up in the clouds, it's in groundwater, it's in rivers, lakes, streams, comes out of your faucet. But its ultimate origin is out there in the ocean. Average depth, two and a half miles. Maximum depth, seven miles. It sounds like a lot until you realize that it's a relatively you know, finite, part of our life support system. In the introductory remarks, it said uh, it was said that water is, is uh, one of our most precious com uh, commodities or, or resources. I'd have to say it's the most precious natural resource because without water, nothing else matters because there's no life. There's the economy, forget it, security, what security? Who cares? Your health, without water, there's no life. Think Mars. It's a handy planet that some people would like to see us escape to to set up housekeeping, but to go there means you take your life support system with you. And maybe it would be possible to extract some water from the rocks on Mars. Maybe there was an ocean there once, Maybe, and there is apparently some water still there. But so much we take for granted here that we, as you point out, we have, and you point out, it's, we take it for granted, like the air you breathe. And there is very much a connection between water and the air we breathe. Because where there is water, there's likely to be life. There may be life 
There may be water without life, but no life without water. And on this planet, where the water exists in the ocean, that's where most of life on Earth is. It's where 97, some say maybe 99% of the biosphere where life occurs is out there in the ocean, in the ocean. And from the surface down to at least 300 feet or so, in some places twice that, maybe a bit more, there are little green guys and little blue-green things that are generating oxygen, taking the little bit of carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere, I mean, it's a crucial amount. Too much, we're seeing too much, but too little means we've got to have some to drive photosynthesis. That means that you fix carbon to make huge plants and other agricultural things, but you also generate oxygen. And on the order of 70% of the oxygen that we're breathing comes from those little creatures out in the sea. We haven't acknowledged that until recently. The ocean is in trouble. It's in serious trouble. It's happened before what we now see in the Gulf of Mexico. Since I was a kid, we've managed to extract about 90% of the big fish in the sea. Tunas, swordfish, sharks, halibut, certainly the tunas. A grouper, snapper, I mean cod, even some of the little fish like menhaden and herring are remarkably depressed in a very short period of time with consequences to the chemistry of the ocean, uh, to the chemistry of the planet, because every fish, after all, is a carbon-based unit, like trees. Every living thing is, including you, we're all carbon-based units. In the ocean, you know, we haven't really calculated the value of what's there in terms of what drives the way the world works, to the same extent that we have what's above the surface on, on trees and on the land, but we're getting there. This is a pivotal time. We'll talk about solutions in the next little phase, but first the problems that what we're putting, taking out of the ocean is, is rocking the, the systems that hold the planet steady. What we're putting into the ocean is rocking the natural systems that hold the planet steady. Uh, it was said in the introductory remarks that, that water is the great thermoregulator of the planet. Well, it's mostly ocean. That's 97% of the ocean, of the water. So we need to think about the services that the ocean provides. Home for most of life on Earth, holds the planet steady, generates oxygen, puts water in the atmosphere, absorbs carbon dioxide, shapes planetary chemistry, and we're trashing it. And nowhere is that more obvious right now than the Gulf of Mexico, where for whatever reasons, we are seeing the worst loss of, of oil into a body of water that uh, short of the Persian Gulf, which still exceeds what we're seeing in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and the consequences we still, we won't know for some time, but it's not a recipe for good health, not just the millions of gallons of oil, but the millions of gallons of dispersants that are also being applied. Bad news for life in the ocean. And if the ocean is getting bad news, that means we're getting bad news because I like to think sometimes we need to be reminded that every creature on Earth, ourselves included, is a sea creature because we're all dependent 
on the existence of the ocean. And not just a trashed ocean either, but a healthy ocean that keeps us alive. Thank you. Hopefully we can tape that and export it to the public schools all over America. Um, Hugh, we need food as well as water. And um, as you are looking into the agriculture of the world, uh, tell us about what it takes in terms of one assumes the plants need to be watered. How much water does that take? Yep. yep. So before I do that, I just want to say I'm so pleased to be on a panel with Sylvia. She's one of my favorite carbon-based units. So it's <laughs> really, really cool stuff. Um, so I, how much water does it take? The, the answer is a whole bunch. Um, agriculture is thirsty. And if you say how much is a glass of water, water worth, there's a whole bunch of water that's used in agriculture before you get to the glass. So in America today, 2% of the population farms that 2% consumes 70% of the fresh water. So agriculture is thirsty. If you go to Africa, 90 to 95% of the fresh water consumed goes to agriculture. So as you look in a future, the future for our kids, certainly our grandkids, they're going to live in a warm, uh, dustier world than we live in today because of climate change. And the demand curve for food will escalate. So it's going to be a busier, warmer, more crowded planet. But the demand for um, commodities will, will rise. How much water does it take? If you, I, I was trying to think, if, if, if you kind of worked with me and you said the ceiling in here um, was about 30 feet high. If you imagined a canal that was um, 30 feet deep, that was 300 feet wide, which is probably about the width of this room. So if you imagine the canal about this wide and about this deep that went around the world 180 times, that's about how much water agriculture consumes in a year. So the Today. challenge, the challenge I think, is um, when escalating population with a population that's going to eat different stuff they'll eat more protein. Um, how do you supply water to agriculture in a more sustainable manner? And how do you drive increased yields with less water on the same footprint so that you don't chop down another tree? That's the definition of a good day. And I have to tell you that the, the downer piece in these panels is always the first piece. You know, and especially on a Friday night, it's the, the challenge I'm, I'm the optimistic Scott, which is a contradiction in terms. <laughs> because um, I, th I think there is opportunities. I, I think the key in this for so many different vectors is action. And the longer this is extended, the bigger the challenge. So I, I think it's less about... Um, I think it's less about the magnitude, it's much more about the acceleration of putting solutions in, in, in place. But um, uh, agriculture is a thirsty business. You know, that brings up, it's more than agriculture though, Joe, isn't it? It's, it's, it's other industries. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I, I will, and I'll start by saying I think you know it's living in the United States. We forget that it was only in 2008 we had a, a historic mankind first, in the sense that now for the first time ever we have just as many people living in the cities as we do in the rural areas. So it's 50-50. And you've got to go to Asia and parts of the world to see that before your eyes. Um, and so that's a big deal. But and when you talk about the urbanization, you're talking about new demand for whether it's offices, for, for office buildings, residentials, and so forth. Um, you're talking about more residence industrialization. So I think that underlying component is still out there. And it's, it's going to be a huge driver. Related to that, right now in the emerging markets, the middle class, roughly speaking, is about 400 million people. That's going to triple in the next 10 to 15 years. And you, to your point, as the middle class evolves, they per capita incomes rise, the correlation between rising protein in their diets goes up dramatically, and steadily, not dramatically, but it moves up higher. So, you know, the 400 million today, 1.2 billion tomorrow. How are we gonna feed these people? And that's gonna put much more stress on the water system. And speaking, it is beyond agriculture. One statistic that was in the National Geographic April, for one pair of blue jeans, it takes 3,000 gallons of water to make one pair of blue jeans, which is staggering. That's the virtual water index. But I never, so water, Sylvia, to your point, it's everything. It's everything. You know, Sylvia, in um, your wonderful book, The World is Blue, you warn that the decisions we make in the next 10 years are going to affect our, our life as we know it in the next 10,000. Can you talk a little bit about that? We're already feeling the impact of decisions made before this time. Uh, one reason I think I remain an incurable optimist is that we realize that we've got a problem. I look at those poor creatures in the Gulf of Mexico, the whale that surfaced in an avalanche of oil and fresh water, clear water was several miles away but it had no choice, it breathes. So it comes up and sees the surface and it might not want to go up in the midst of that dark cloud, but it has to because it has to breathe and when it does, it dies. They, these creatures that some of them, like whales, live as long as we do, they may recognize that the world has changed in their lifetime, maybe 40, 50 years enormous change in the ocean in that period of time, on the land as well. But they don't know why, and they don't know what to do about it. We know why, and we do know what to do about it. At least we have a clue, and we can communicate. Although some whales can communicate over thousands of miles, they don't reach all members of their species. Uh, we can get to a significant number so that something that happens on one side of the planet can be instantly transmitted to the other side. And people can know, and it is about knowing. Uh, that April issue of the National Geographic brought together information gathered over long periods of time by experts that communicated that, that distillation of, of knowledge and then spread it out to people all over the world. Solving a problem, as it's often said, starts with knowing you've got one. Well, Houston, we've got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> we really do. And uh, uh, it starts in some measure with every individual recognizing what we as individuals can do, but it starts 
also at the higher levels of policy making and the, looking at our laws that squander water and don't distribute it in ways that really make any sense anymore. Some of the dams that have been constructed are perverse considering what we really need to do with the water that is ours to, to deal with. I was distressed two years ago when I went to Singapore and heard the Minister of Development express with great joy how it wouldn't take long before they were able to capture every drop of water that landed in Singapore. They were about to close off every single river and not let a single drop escape to the ocean. And that means the circulation that is natural with rivers and oceans connecting and life in the sea, life on the land somehow. Uh, it was an engineering coup, but it was an environmental disaster, although it hasn't happened totally yet. The, the experience that has been discovered elsewhere might have been applied and communicated before that great engineering action was put in motion. That there are other ways to secure security for water without this, what seems to be a smart thing, capture all the water and keep it for yourself. But this is reason for hope for me, that we can begin to understand problems and see where problems have occurred and solutions have occurred elsewhere. And for the first time to hold the world in our hands and see how everything connects and how what, what is happening to the climate affects obviously the water and how we have better means of utilizing the water that we've got. For agriculture, more crop per drop. I mean, that's it. For aquaculture too, which is looming on the horizon. We need to think about how to have closed systems that maximize the sun's energy to creatures that are low on the food chain. So to the extent that we move toward increased consumption of cultivated protein, make it efficient. Make it the most efficient way that we can. That doesn't mean growing salmon or tuna or any other carnivore. It means growing as we have on the land, creatures that eat, consume plants if we're going to and think about the microbes that are out there that could be put into the service of our food consumption. We haven't even really begun to think about what Arthur C. Clarke dreamed about years ago in some of his science fiction that could, in the not too distant future, become remarkably effective, efficient, and useful science fact. Sylvia, thank you. I think we can, I am going to, uh, Encourage us now to move on to what's, what's to be done here. I thought that's what we were just doing. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> but okay, we're, yeah. we're the, we've outlined the problems, we've outlined the issues. Now let's get a little bit more specific about some of our solutions. Okay. And um, Hugh, if I can start with you uh, to use what Sylvia just said, uh, more, more crop per drop. Um, and you mentioned a couple of things that I think piques everyone's interest. One, that it isn't just that we have growing populations yeah. or that uh, in some of the populations that are growing the most, we're using the most water. And then we have the additional um, sort of factor of these changing diets, yep. particularly in China and India, where more water will be required 
for some of these protein foods. So what, what does a company like yours do and what, what is the responsibility of corporations? What from a practical level can, can you do scientifically and what, what should we be thinking about? Um, so more crop per drop is the, the, it, somewhere in there is the answer. Um, I, I, I was on a panel uh, a few months ago and the question was, what's more valuable, soil or oil? And my vote was heavy on soil. And I was thinking about coming here, what's more valuable, soil or water? And, and I think water would squeak through as the, uh, as the limiting resource. So how do you get more crop per drop? You have to manage soil much more effectively. A lot of soil blows away, um, washes away, or becomes contaminated with salt every year. So managing the finite resource of soil and managing that with water is, is one, one big piece. If you look at the world today, um, we know more about the soil structure of Mars than we know about the soil structure in sub-Saharan Africa. And it's changed enormously in the last 100 years. So becoming intimate in the knowledge of what soils retain water and how you manage those soils is, is one big piece. The second piece is cultivation of soil. And um, I, I don't know how, you know, you see soil that's been plowed this deep. And every year it's plowed this deep. But you plant a seed this deep. So if you're planting the seed this deep, why are you plowing this much? And increasingly, and, and it started here in America, there's now scratch cultivation that just tickles the surface and just disrupts. You can try this in your own backyard. Just scratch cultivate the surface, and all the earthworms and all the microflora concentrates in that top inch or inch and a half, and it becomes light and crumbly. And so you save diesel, it's more sustainable. So how you manage that, that soil. In the longer term, um, we're working on, um, at Monsanto, but in, in collaboration with a lot of different groups, we're working on how you double yield on the same acre. And our estimates would be, if you look out to about 2050, we'll need about twice as much food. And half of that twice as much, half of that twice as much, if that makes sense on a Friday night, twice as much food. Half of that is two and a half billion people coming to the party. So six and a half goes to nine-ish. And I think it could be more than that. So half of the doubling is, um, or half of the growth is um, pure population growth. And the other half is protein. And there's a funny kind of logarithmic scale where fish, chicken, pork, and beef. And it takes about a pound of feed to produce a pound of fish. They're the most efficient in translating um, protein in, in, into consumable animal protein. Not, not the big tunas, though. Not the big tunas. No. I've been well-schooled. Catfish, tilapia, and carp. <laughs> you heard it here. Um, <laughs> it takes about seven pounds of grain to make a pound of beef. And there's many parts of the world are just in that cusp of having beef for the first time. You know, you remember that thing as a kid, you know, on, on Saturday we, we had steak. And now we eat steak ad nauseum and there's some parts of the world that are just on that cusp and that's the other half of that growth. So long story short, if, if you telescope out, there will be an increased demand for commodities. Um, the goal that we've been working on is how do you double yields on the safe, same footprint 
with a third less stuff. And stuff is mainly water and fertilizer. And if you could grow yields on the same footprint significantly, if you could double yields, but do it in a manner where you use the third less stuff, then you're at the beginning, I think, a conversation on sustainability. And sustainability is kind of weird. It's like religion and politics. Everybody's got their own version. Everybody believes passionately on their version. My version of sustainability is how, how do you grow more yields with less inputs? And how do you do that in a year-on-year -year manner where you can prove with data that you're consuming less as you, as you produce more? And that, 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 I think, is the long... That's how you start throttling back agriculture from gulping to sipping um, finite water resources. Well, I'm just glad to hear that the doubling of the food consumption wasn't your um, comment on American obesity. So <laughs> no. I, 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 I'm, I'm feeling a little better here. Yeah. Joe, can you talk a little bit about where with this kind of movement, where we're beginning to see where is uh, private industry going, where is the investment being made, where, where can it be made? Well, I, I think private industry is looking for the, the commodity to be priced appropriately. And what, why, why invest in a commodity where it's not priced appropriately, it's underpriced, overusage, and therefore the underinvestment, the kind of the situation that we're in. So, Sylvia, I, I want to push back a little bit on what comment you said, because I think, you know, if we're going to, what do we have to do about it? I, I don't think we recognize the problem. I, I don't think um, the average citizen in this no, country. that was the first section. We're okay. on. No, no, but I want to, that, how do you, we have, we have the capacity. We, we have the capacity. <laughs> yeah. So the education. I agree with you. I think, so, and to your, to your answer, I think public sector or private sector have to come together, work this out. We need the incentives from the public sector. I talked about the $200 billion that could be spent uh, very quickly over the next five, 10 years. But how, how are we gonna spend this? Who's gonna spend this? Who's, are we gonna work together? So the, the public sector has, has the, kind of the, the duty to give the incentives <coughs> to the private industry to go out and make these investments and get the expected return on investment. Because without the ROI, you're not gonna make the investment. And we're not there yet. And I, hear, and I would also say, in solution, Doha, we're, we're talking about food. But Doha, the agricultural trade, the global trade agreement, it's hung up now over farms, farmers. And if we don't unlock Doha and get to, to the farm issue, global trade, which is terribly distorted and costly and inefficient, that, that's one way we can also start to address these issues. And it would help companies like Monsanto, for instance, if we could finally come to some resolution on Doha and agricultural trade. So it's gonna have to be a partnership, public sector, private sector. But until we price this commodity appropriately, the private sector is not gonna jump in. So there isn't a current opportunity for private investing? Not more in the hardware, the, the, the physical infrastructure, you know, wastewater treatment, um, desalinization, um, you know, how to eat storage and so forth. But this is, to me, that's just kind of looking backwards. Where if you want to really look forward, how do we capture it, store it, biotechnology and so forth? We've got to go to the next, get into the 21st century. So to speak, speaking to that, Sylvia, I guess, Going back from the problem to the solution, part of it is clearly that we've got to educate everybody better and make them recognize that this is a, a crisis waiting to happen or maybe a crisis that we're in as we speak. Where, where do you go with that in terms of um, education? What, what should we do? Google Earth is a good place to start. Google Earth? <laughs> because there you can literally hold the world in your hands and see how things relate and see that the world is mostly blue 
and it's a great way to literally dive into issues that are occurring around the world. I mean, that is just an example of how we can now communicate in ways that we couldn't even 10 years ago. Um, I think this explosion of communications technology is really cause for hope and is clearly a part of the solution. It's fundamental to know. You can't care, you can't act if you don't know. You might not care even if you know, but you certainly can't care if you don't know. Sylvia, what about, um, to get a little bit more specific, what about desalinization? I mean, that's, that's got to be something we're looking at, and how does that work? Well, extracting the salt out of the ocean, salt water, there are problems. I don't think this should be viewed as a panacea. Uh, clearly, it, it's a short-term solution, and in some parts of the world, it's a major source of fresh water. In Saudi Arabia, for example, huge installations that, among other things, water golf courses. <laughs> and in, in the desert to make green stuff that is pretty, but it isn't actually feeding people or providing necessities. And that's the point. We, we take for granted water as something that we ought to have no matter what and use however. Uh, places that have drawn down fossil water haven't really faced up to the reality of how the water cycle works. Drawing water that is stored 10,000 years ago and using it now. So the answer is in the eyes of some, most of the water is salt water. Let's just take the salt out and voila, you know, you've got the solution. But it takes a lot of energy on one hand to produce fresh water from salt water. The solution to, you have to realize that salt water is not just salt water, it's filled with life. It's a minestrone of critters that make the world go round. So if you have this enormous intake of this minestrone, it means fish eggs, it means baby shrimp, it means uh, the whole spectrum of life gets sucked in with the water and destroyed in the process of taking the fresh water out. So there's a cost that is not being largely accounted for. It happens on boats too. Every little boat that goes out with its water maker, you know, you take salt water in, you get the fresh water, but what you leave behind is a cost that we don't really think about. But I think about it because you know, I've seen those little critters and I dive in the ocean and I realize that it's not just water that makes the world go round, it's life in the sea, it's trees, it's all the rest. And we have undervalued the importance of these little guys that make the world function. So I'm not saying that we should not, not do this, but we should do it with our eyes open and realize the real cost and be prepared to act in ways that account for it, whatever that takes. And maybe before we get to that point, think of how we're using the water we've got and to be more efficient and effective. I look in the, the state that I live in, California. Water from Northern California is transported by a big open canal to Southern California. 
for everything that Southern California uses the water for. And of course, along the way, it's some of it goes off into most of it. It's like 85% into agriculture, but whatever goes down to Southern California, but a lot of it goes up into the atmosphere, just evaporates. Huge cost, huge loss of this precious fresh water that would had for a time been going into whatever makes Northern California, Northern California. I mean, it's the, the distribution of water has, has just not been done according to any logical plan. Uh, it's been the convenience of the moment and decisions made for that particular point of a political regime or whatever. But now, now is the time to really pull back and look at the whole now that we can. We have these global information um, systems that can show layer on layer, where are the people, where's the water, where are the watersheds, how are the watersheds being protected, do we have uh, natural systems like national parks that do protect watersheds, and if we don't, maybe we should think about having a lot of trees in place to protect the origin of water, and just to think, to rethink the use of the water that we've already got before we start these engineering feats, and they are fantastic to be able to do what we couldn't imagine doing 50 years ago. But go slow. I mean, I, I think about the big desal plant in Tampa Bay, Florida. Why would anyone ever think that it was necessary to put a plant there? Florida is one of the most water-blessed states or parts of the planet with fresh water that is a gift, and we've managed to corrupt it in 50 years so that water is rationed, that salt water starts seeping into the precious groundwater. We just have to stop these stupid policies that are, are costing us our lives in the end, costing us dearly financially, but in the end, it's, it's a matter of, we're all in this together, and we have to think about how we're going to maintain our life support system most efficiently. You, before um, we move on to questions, I'm gonna ask a question that I would ask maybe if you and Joe could speak to the economics of water and um, for today and the future. We were speaking earlier before we came on stage about um, uh, crops and, and um, the world of agriculture in various parts of the world, and it is profitable in some places and not profitable in others. And I had the pleasure of meeting you um, at an event that the World Food Program put on, where I know they are very grateful for what you're doing in some of the um, developing countries or uh, emerging markets that are emerging, but they are doing it with great difficulty. Yep. And if you want, to, if you just talk about that for a few minutes. Uh. Yep. Uh, <laughs> uh, so water's scarce, getting scarcer. In the parts of the world that need it most, it's getting scarcer faster. Uh, so it's terribly, terribly unfair, but it's the way it is. So um, in two or three years' time, 2012, 2013, we will launch, in America, we'll launch drought-tolerant corn. It's, it's biotech, which is 
controversial in some camps and unpopular in others, but it gives the corn the capacity to yield more and drink less. Um, we think somewhere in the region of 10% more yield in dryland corn areas. We, th through collaboration, and I, for the record, I think this is less about GFWIS science. I think it's less about technological advancement. I think the rate limiting step in this, the rate limiting step in these areas is <coughs> institutions' capacity to work together. So governments have never been able to figure this out. Um, companies don't. It's not what they're good at. And NGOs aspire to it, but they're usually resource-strapped or subscale. Uh, and my view around something like water in some of these areas is, how do you bring disparate groups together, often who don't trust each other, often who've never worked before, but have components that, when put together, look a lot more holistically like a solution? And that's harder to do than the technology. It gets down into um, respecting differences and saying, but we have a goal to achieve. So the, the, the short answer is, uh, and it's, it's my first experience in this, but it's, it's why I'm optimistic. We donated those technologies for drought tolerance <coughs> and all the seed technology that goes with it into a holding pen. And that holding pen is um, managed by an NGO called AATF, the African Agricultural Technology Foundation, which is a spin-off from USAID. It's what America used to do so well. And I think with this administration is beginning to pick up again. So we donated the technology and the know-how. They know Africa and the Gates Foundation um, and uh, Howard Buffett kicked in $47 million to develop these products on a royalty-free basis for Africa. And this will take seven, eight, nine years. It's, it's very long work. But I think, t t to your question, Anne, and when you look to the future, this isn't going to be about companies solving this. I don't believe it's a governmental. The, 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 there isn't a silver bullet. But I, th I think the chapter in the books in this, that the definition of success is going to be how do groups come together and bring different components to it? And frankly, once that starts moving, then I think you, s then you see financial institutions start to look at this as platforms that are investable. And we're, we're, a, we're a ways from that, Joel, but I'm, I'm, um, I think we're in the early stages of changing how some of these projects um, originate, how they're managed, and how they're measured. Uh, so that it isn't fancy speeches, it's grain, grain in, in bins. So. I, I would just add, in, in the sense that it's preordained that China and India are going to rule the world, and we probably heard some of that in the last couple of days, but the Achilles heel of these countries is, is water, unequivocally. Ask the Chinese, ask the Indians. Um, you don't see a lot of semiconductor plants in, in China right now because they don't have clean water. Uh, that's a prerequisite if you don't have it. So here's an opportunity for the United States and also Europe to come together with China and say, listen, you, you've got a serious problem, and they've got energy, but you, know, you can put people on buses. <clears throat> they don't have to have a car, but there's no substitute for food security. So I think this is real opportunity with some foresight for the world to come together over an issue 
that will cause political social instability if it's not handled correctly. So we've got a great opening line to China, India, and the developing countries to say, hey, we're in it together. Let's, let's work on this because if we don't, you've got problems right at home. And by the way, we've got plenty of fields left in Iowa. So we can eat, but you won't. So let's work together. Right? So it's a real top of you know, energy, food security. I think we might say that a, a bit more nicely than that. <laughs> well, I, I hope so. We would. But I think when it comes, I think we have to have that conversation. Perhaps we are, but I do think it has to be elevated. Right. And find the bridges. I mean, we, when it comes to the global economy and so forth, let's find the commonalities that we can work together. We're always looking at the differences and not the commonalities. Here's a perfect commonality. This is a bridge builder. You know, thank you. And um, in uh, just a few weeks ago, we were privileged to be um, awarded the first platinum lead status for a skyscraper. Uh, and with that certification, we had some fanfare. Um, uh, Mayor Bloomberg from New York and uh, Al Gore came to uh, uh, join us in that ceremony, but for all the good that, and it's a wonderful building, but there are early days even in these efforts. Uh, one of the things is we um, recycle the rainwater. Of course, you've got to have the rainwater. Um, and we put in a series of uh, toilets throughout the building. Well, you know, you lo low water use. These things are all, um, They've all worked out well, but on the practical level, there's always, a, there's always that moment where um, uh, the idea and the realities are, uh, uh, don't always meet. Um, but we've, uh, we've had great success with it, and it has incented us uh, as a company to, uh, we have a water specialist at our company that only focuses on the use of our employees, our use of water. Um, in all our buildings, and we've been able to reduce the use of water just by thinking about it. Yeah. So um, I think it, 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 the good place to start is just thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So when just thinking about it, this is where we're going to open um, the dialogue now uh, to, uh, to your questions. And again, if I can just ask you to uh, step up to the microphone, uh, and then we can direct the questions accordingly. Thank you. While we're waiting for the questions, there's just one thought I'd like to put out there for what it's worth. I've been impressed with, of course, what's achievable on large-scale agriculture, but on a small scale, I've witnessed in two places an interesting cycle where tilapia is being grown in closed systems, tanks, if you will, mm -hmm. and the tilapia doing what fish do, enrich the water. And that enriched water flows into a hydroponic setup where uh, various crops are being grown. Vegetables. Vegetables, yeah. lettuce. I've, I've seen this in the Bahamas. Yeah. So enriching the soil? No, it's no, water. water. It's, water. it's one volume it of water. And it's, it's in a greenhouse-like affair. You yeah. can't do this over thousands of acres, but you can on a small scale. Fish on the top and veggies on the bottom. Right, wow. so you cycle, um, basically you, you take out the fish, that's protein, you grow the plants, you eat the plants, and the fish eat the plants too, I mean the, the waste plants. So that, that you have not entirely a closed system, but it's, it's more closed than the open fields where water goes into the atmosphere, where you grow a lot of material that isn't actually consumed. 
And so, the, uh, again, there's a place, maybe, for small-scale success, more crop per drop, and recycling the ingredients of what keeps a family going or a community. I, I've seen at James Cook University in Australia several great examples of these closed systems, some with marine things, with marine plants, and with certain <coughs> uh, marine animals, little crabs and small shrimp, and recycling closed systems. And the island school in, in the Bahamas, yep. where they actually have this growing. The, the kids eat the lettuce that is enriched by the tilapia. They also eat the tilapia. And it doesn't take a whole lot of water. It's a really efficient yep. use of water, but on a small scale. But we need a combination of big scale for lots of calories and small scale, perhaps, that it, individual communities or even individual families might manage. Anyway. Thank you. Ooh, quite a crowd. <laughs> That's good. Um, so I was just wondering if you guys had some hard numbers. Uh, what's the current supply for, uh, I guess, recoverable, usable fresh water? And uh, what's the current demand? And how are those numbers going to change over the next decade or however long it, the issue will you say will last? I'll start by saying, Sylvia talked about, in the sense that only about 1% of our water here is fresh water on, on the planet. 70% of the planet is covered in water. It's a fraction of 1%, okay. actually. Okay, yeah. I was rounding up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, so in, that's it, but, but when you go, you can go to Beijing, you can go to Mumbai, you can go even parts of, uh, you know, say Atlanta, Southwest, cities that are growing, and you can see the water usage double, I mean, increase in double digits quite rapidly. <laughs> so remember, this is a commodity that's not priced accordingly, so it's overused. And if there's no cost associated, we typically overuse it until we use more than we should. So globally, I'm not sure the actual, you know, what the numbers are, but you can look at the protein and, and go from there and, and figure out that this is growing at double digits, probably globally, at, as a point when it's becoming more precious. And, uh, and j just another factoid, 80% um, of the world's agriculture is rain-fed, and, the, and they call that green water, so it falls from the sky. Comes from the ocean. Comes from the ocean. <laughs> Everything <laughs> comes from the ocean. You know. um, <laughs> you're right. You're right. 80% so is, uh, I've lost the thread completely. 80% <laughs> is rain-fed, uh, and that's green water, but that 80% produces 60% of agricultural commodities. And the remaining 20% is irrigated, and it produces the other 40%. And the way that this is torquing, the way that these, as you project out, irrigation will increase. The effectiveness in rain-fed tapers off. So that's the crop per drop thing. You need to minimize the blue, and that's called blue water. So you drill a hole, you extract artesian water, and it's gone forever and ever and ever. So the smart approach is how do you optimize the 80% the that's rain-fed, and how do you minimize or improve the efficiency on that irrigated stuff and start changing the dynamic? So it's, it's, um, that's, the hard, that's the hard day, and we need to get much more smart on how we utilize the stuff that f falls out of the sky. And with climate change, that will change. That, that will change. That, you, you can, that will change. Yeah. 
Thank you. Hi, I'm John here at Calgary, Alberta. Um, Australia has been experiencing severe drought and oh, exponential yeah. consumption of freshwater resources for decades now. As a country continent, what does the rest of the world need to do to ensure that it remains habitable for humanity? That's a big one. That's a, yeah. yeah, and I know you touched on this with the tilapia thing, but large scale. <laughs> little known aquifers left there. Yeah, let, let me, do you mind? I, I don't want to be a microphone hog, but um, so in, in the piece that I'm involved in, in agriculture, um, and this is, al this is always hard to talk about, but I, I, I fundamentally believe this. So climate change is real. The impacts of climate change are perceptible over decades. But long before it gets too warm to live somewhere, water is scarce. And one of the weird things that's happened, um, because we're, we're single track, and one of the weird things that's happened is, as climate change has become front and center, this conversation has diminished. And as I look at agriculture, the adaptability of species. In other words, how fast can you breed stuff? Forget biotech, just breeding. How fast can you breed new varieties? You can breed fast enough for a long time to stay ahead of the perceptible change of, in climate. Breeding fast enough to keep up with water scarcity in some parts of the world, it, it's the tortoise and the hare. So we're all stalwarts and we all believe passionately in climate change and, and Australia's a scary, you know, it's, it's been on fire for two years. But how we manage water in my books is, is more immediate, it's a bigger challenge, and it's hidden at the moment. That this is, this is a good thing sitting and talking about it because very often it takes second place to um, the, the bigger discussion on climate change. With respect to how the problem originated in Australia. I mean, it is partly just going, <laughs> people growing or living in places that uh, can't be sustained given the natural scheme of things. It's also planting things like cotton that is water thirsty in places that it never should have been planted and it's subsidized. I mean, it's, it's strange. But it's true, uh, and after the fact, you can say, well, we shouldn't have done that, but there, there we are. It's growing rice in California in deserts is another example of putting things in inappropriate places and paying the consequences down the road. Uh, I wish that there were a really straightforward answer to your straightforward question. But it's a question that is one that can be posed for the world as a whole. There is only so much planet and so much carrying capacity for various aspects of it. It's going to become increasingly a privilege to be occupying space in the habitable part of Australia, I think, will be part of the answer. Because water is clearly a limiting factor. And desalination can't solve it all. All right, thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Fabio Scarano from the Brazilian branch of Conservation International. Uh, and 
I would like to take this opportunity, it's such a fantastic panel to ask for some advice here. And uh, well, our case in Brazil, I think, is the opposite of some of the countries that have been mentioned here, such as India, China, and I think Australia as well. Brazil has 15% of the world's renewable fresh water. Uh, there are predictions that, in, that by 2050, we should be producing about 30% of the food of the world. Uh, there's a dramatic redu uh, reduction in deforestation in the Amazon uh, going on right now. Uh, and we have 50% of the whole Amazon region within protected areas at this moment, and that of course protect water sources. Monsanto is helping us a great deal to protect water, source, uh, 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 water sources in, the, in, in central Brazil, where, where we are producing a lot of food. Uh, and the question that many people ask us in Brazil is, yes, water is important for everybody in the world. We are fully aware of that. But can we get paid for that? So my first question is, do you believe that we can, in the short term, build an official market for payment of water as an environmental service. Second question is directly to, uh, to Silvia. Uh, thanks for your brilliant comments. And uh, in Brazil, in the past seven years, Brazil has created 35% of the territory of protected areas in the world, mostly continental. Unfortunately, we didn't do so well in marine areas. We have yes. less than 1%. <laughs> Yeah. Of, 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 of our coastline protected. Brazilian uh, seashore is as big as our Amazon. We call it Blue Amazon because we know as little from the sea as we know from the Amazon at this point. So I would like to ask for some advice. We're going to Nagoya in October. We are trying very hard to push for more protected marine areas. And as you know, in Brazil, there's a lot of oil in the sea. And uh, we are trying to engage corporate partners to try to help us out in building these protected areas that we so badly need in the Atlantic. Thank Why you. Thank you. Why don't we begin with you, Joe, on the economics? Yeah, I would just say I think you, Brazil has been paid for your, your water endowment vis-a-vis -vis the agricultural powerhouse that you are today. And I think um, at U.S. Trust, we're look, always looking for the countries, what's, you know, what set, set them up, sets them apart. And it's not just energy in, in Brazil, it's the agricultural component in lieu of this world that's now eating more. So I would say, in a sense, you've been paid for that water endowment in the agricultural sector that comes with it. How do you capitalize further? I mean, be careful. Go slowly. Husband, nurture that precious resource that you have. Don't rush it. That's what I would tell you. Don't, you're getting paid. Don't get greedy. And, and that's what I would tell you. I mean, because the mm -hmm. agricultural equation hugely favors Brazil and all the South American continent. Totally think we're getting paid for that, but that's all right for now. <laughs> Thank you. The so Chinese have paid up. Come on. <laughs> Let's move on to the second part of the question. Yeah. Well, I so appreciate your recognition that there is a need for doing more in terms of protecting the ocean. And you're right, it's but it isn't just Brazil. A fraction of one percent of all of the ocean globally has any sort of deliberate protection. In the Gulf of Mexico, there is some protection around the Florida Keys and a tiny little place called the Flower Garden Banks that isn't far from where the Deep Horizon uh, spill is taking place. Fortunately, it's a little bit west, a little bit south, and so far is escaping the being affected in a major way. 
But there is a move growing to really understand how much we need to do in order to protect the ocean, recognizing the value, the services that it delivers for free, and how much at risk we are because of those at-risk free services, if you will. I am so pleased to see uh, the UK, for example, just in the last six weeks, establish for the Chagos Archipelago for a number of reasons, including possibly security reasons, but 544,000 square kilometers of ocean where even the fish are safe. What a concept. <laughs> and it was uh, George Bush who actually signed into law for this country two of the largest areas where even the fish are safe, and that is the Northwest Hawaiian Islands, areas around Rose Atoll and the Mariana Islands where, uh, I mean, some fishermen are concerned about seeing places where even the fish are safe. But the truth is we have to do something, not just for the fish, but if there are to be fishermen, where are the fish going to come from if we don't protect the feeding areas, the breeding areas, the corridors over which they pass? Right now, to realize that 99.6 is about that percent of the ocean is open for extractive kinds of, of activities, meaning that, the re that we've only got a little bit in the bank. And it's important to protect the assets. We aren't protecting the assets in a way that we now know that we have to. And so Brazil has already has taken a leadership role in terms of what is being done for the land. Lots of loss over the last 50 years, but an awakening that it's time to, to really be aggressive about protecting what we can while we can, because it's eroding fast. I had a chance to address an audience in the World Bank a couple of years ago and provided a view of Earth from space, most of it blue, and said, there it is, the World Bank. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to protect the assets. <laughs> We've been drawing them down for the history of our species. It's time to think about protecting them. Thank you very much. Thank you. I need to apologize to those of you asking questions, because I've also got to be mindful for all of you in the room. It is a Friday evening. We've, uh, I've kept everyone more than an hour. Um, I, uh, we can give short answers. Shall we try? <laughs> okay, good. As long as you're game, we're happy. Okay, I'll talk fast. <laughs> um, could, the could the panel speak to uh, the privatization of water rights? And if that were to occur on a large scale basis, how would you ensure that there uh, water security for those living in poverty and the environment? That's a short answer question. Uh, there you go. I know. I know. Yeah. Well, I th just to begin, I think part of what you heard here tonight is the first thing is using less water for each of the, uh, the activities that require water. And then I'll let each of you briefly speak. I mean, I briefly, I mean, privatization, that's always the, the kind of, that's, that's part of the solution, but how do you, how do you, you can't privatize something that does not have fair economic value attached to it just yet. So it'll be a slow process, but I think that this discussion has to start. And bring in the World Bank, bring in the uh, government leaders and the, and the, and the, 
in the private sector, but privatization has to come with an economic value. We don't know what that is just yet. Priceless, literally. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I, the only thing I, I'd add, you, you fly across America, you look out the plane and there's those circles. Mm. Um, water's being pumped up from very deep down. And Fossil they, water. They, it's, yeah, it's been a long time since it's seen daylight. That's right. And um, they use diesel and electricity. And today it costs about $150 an acre, 120 to $150 an acre to bring that water up. Uh, and it's not privatized, but it comes with a real cost. And my experience in those conversations is, um, how do you reduce the cost? How do you use less? Is there mechanisms where I, I could pump less, use less, and get the same? So I think to Joe's point, there's a real awareness around um, when you place a value on it, then optimization becomes more th than a concept. And if there's, if there's no value, then, then it's harder to start that. And the thing I'm encouraged with is, even when it falls out the sky, you know, I come from a very wet, rainy place in the world. Um, even when it falls from the sky, the conversation now is, how do you make better use of that? Right. So, Catherine. Thanks. Thank you. From a layman's perspective, if you overlay a map of population of the world on freshwater resource, there seems to be a great mismatch between the resource that exists and the place where the population is growing. Um, or exists. Um, do you know of any movements or, or any attempts um, that are presently in process to relocate some of the water that's naturally found in water-rich regions to places that are um, more water-poor but population-rich? Like Canada. Yeah. <laughs> I think they like small population <laughs> and a lot of water. I you, you, see, you see movement of water today. I think that was Joe's point on the Brazil question. So America, um, Brazil, and Argentina grow all the soybeans for the world, more or less. And they are the richest source of plant-based protein. So when you stop feeding animals to animals, which is the mad cow thing, and you go, you go back to the revolutionary idea of feeding plants to animals, yes. then soybeans becomes really important. The funny thing about that is you're really trucking water around the world. And those beans that leave Brazil, um, a third of them stay at home, about a third of them go to Europe, and a third go to Asia. And that's a long way to transport water because every little bean is carrying a little thimble full of water in it. So. I, I can't think of an example where you're seeing mass translocation of populations to water sources, but we're living in one today where you're seeing commodity flows. That's really another way of, yeah. of shipping very large amounts of fresh water in, in the bellies of ships. So I don't know if that helps. Yeah, or, or I only just thought about it. Or perhaps in the Middle East, I mean, Syria and Jordan, I mean, the rivers, the, the seas in and around these rivers, they're drying up. They're never coming back. People have to move. I mean, yeah. in that sense, I mean, you, you have to move or, or you die. There's okay. nothing there. Parts yeah. of Australia. So, I mean, you'll see that type That's of true. migration. That's but. true. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I don't know if we helped you very much. But. 
Hi, this is a question probably for Hugh. Um, last year, um, sometime, NPR had a very powerful series, um, I think a three-part series of Indian farmers in North India that were killing themselves in droves because what had happened is that um, non-indigenous um, genetically modified seeds were given to them, which in the short term were yielding tremendous amounts of crops, but in the long term what it was doing is depleting the water supply because they required exponentially more water to grow, and which resulted in just a you know, period of a few years, three to five years, that they lost their livelihood, they lost their land, they lost everything because they couldn't no longer crop. So I'm just wondering, I mean, you mentioned some long-term solutions like uh, the drought-resistant corn, et cetera. What do you suggest could be done in the short term to help these type of farmers all around the world? Yeah, so um, I've spent a lot of time in India. Um, I lived in Asia and spent a lot of time in India uh, a few years ago. Um, farmer suicides in India are a real issue. They're not linked to our technology. They're linked to crop failure. Um, they're linked to water shortages. And what you see in India, <clears throat> what you see in India today is a lot of areas that grew paddy rice. So you know when you you know those photographs, people walking through mud up to their waist um, with a bullock or an oxen. They use water for weed control. You don't need that amount of water to grow rice, but the water is used as a cultural mechanism for weed control. Water is disappearing fast in India because they're the artesian uh, uh, takeout. And areas that traditionally grew rice are no longer grown rice, and that's put a lot of pressure on the farm economy. And you now see dryland rice emerging, which many other parts of the world grow. Um, and you see corn emerging now. And the fascinating thing in India is it's a vegetarian country, right? Um, but chicken production has increased dramatically because India bifurcates between um, economic vegetarianism. I eat vegetables because I can't afford anything else. And religious vegetari vegetarianism. And as that curve, as that, that's my fish chicken, as, as that chicken piece starts taking off, the demand for commodities increases further and it drives that cycle harder and harder. What I've seen with our technologies in India, and then I'll st stop, but it's really, really interesting. The only real business that we have in India is in cotton. And today in India, after five years, there's more Indian farmers growing biotech cotton in India than there are in America. And then you say, yeah, yeah, but that's a numbers game because these are one-acre farms. They're, they're, they're smaller than many of your backyards. We've more acres of biotech cotton in India than we have in America. So the crops moved to India. Five years ago, they sprayed cotton 12 times for bug control. There's caterpillars that eat the, uh, the, the, the ball. And they cut the fiber, and then you can't spin the fiber. They sprayed it 12 times a year. Um, a backpack sprayer and a lance. And as the cotton grows, you lift the lance higher and then you walk into the spray. It's nearly always kids that spray the crops. It's nearly always girls. At the end of four, at the end of four years, pesticide sprays in that cotton crop, and this is peer-reviewed data, have gone from 12 to two. 10 sprays have gone away. We make money on the substitution cost of the 10 sprays that go away. 
the last two years in a row, the Indian cotton crop has been the biggest it's ever been. So in the space that we operate in, they're making money. If you look at Indian agriculture, and they're very proud of self-sufficiency, they are struggling, and they're struggling because of this issue. Access uh, to water and dependency on irrigated systems. And that, that's, so I don't know if it answers your question, but that's the challenge in a big country with a growing population trying to be self-sufficient in ag agricultural commodities, and, and it gets down to water management. Yes, you, do you want to just add what, what happens to the young girls that were spraying? Yeah, yeah, we were talking about this before. Yeah. It's funny, when you do the surveys and you say, so how do these products work? They don't say the bugs are more dead. Because when you spray them 12 times, they're deader than dead, you know? <laughs> so this isn't, so the conversation isn't about degrees of dead bugs. When you do the farmer surveys, the feedback is, um, my daughter doesn't spray as much. Um, I have my first daughter in my family going to school for the first time. Um, we spray faster now, so we eat in daylight. We prepare the evening meal in daylight rather than late at night. It's so sociological benefits. It's nothing to do with um, dead bugs. And I think when you, you know, Sylvia made the point on how, why don't we cover canals and stop transpiration and evaporation of water. There's so many of these things, um, fascinatingly enough, they, they start in agriculture and they, they start in very basic stuff, but they have societal impacts that reach way beyond weed control or bug control. It's kind of the nuts and bolts of if I'm well fed, then I don't think about picking up a gun or I, you know, it's, anyway. Joe, did I cut you off? I'm sorry. No, I was gonna, you, I mean, talking about India, it's a monsoon economy, so to speak. What percent of India's water comes from the monsoon? It, it's pretty substantial. Which it's, is, it's, it's a bunch, but they don't capture it, and, and, yeah. and it's, it's, it, it's boom or bust. So yeah. the, the irrigation canals that the Indians are using, the Brits put in 150 years ago, and they, they get a ton of water and it disappears really fast and, and disrupts their sewer systems and a whole bunch of bad things happen and then it's bone dry again. So it, 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 it was the earlier question on how do you harvest um, green water and how do you manage green water more effectively mm -hmm. and in a monsoon environment they, they shouldn't be strapped for water. They, they shouldn't. Sir. Hello. Evidently, I'm the last question, so hopefully it's a good one. Um, I apologize if I get a little bit political. I work in um, as a community organizer with Environment Colorado. Uh, my name is Peter Sargent, and um, the the question, essentially, just a little bit of background. Um, I know that uh, Sylvia, you alluded to poor policy decisions that have horrible ramifications. The, the canal in uh, in California. Um, additionally, I'm currently working on a campaign to restore perhaps the, the best water policy that we have for domestic water um, protection, uh, not water rights, but pollution protection, the Clean Water Act of 1972, mm -hmm. which of course we passed after the Cuyahoga River in, in Cincinnati caught fire. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, Cleveland. Lake Huron. Sorry? Yeah. Uh, in, in, any, in any event, um, that, that uh, it was Cleveland, I apologize. That, that river caught fire multiple times. The most devastating one was in um, 1956. But 
we didn't actually get a, a national consensus about the issue until there was a, a photograph that made the front page of Time magazine in 69, where all of a sudden everyone realized <coughs> our rivers are catching fire. <laughs> this is not good. We need to do something about it. Um, and so in any event, in, in a long-winded um, manner, uh, what I'm asking is how can we make sure with regard to pollution, with regard to water rights um, domestically and internationally, how can we go away as us listening and as you as panelists, me standing here, how can we go away and make sure that the right policies and the right decisions are made? Um, and I think that we have a good spectrum, um, especially with you know agriculture with the amount that agriculture plays in deciding uh, policies here in, in the US. Um, so I put that to you. How can we make sure the right policies get adopted? It would start, I think, with everybody holding up the mirror and saying, I'm whatever it is I am, and I can do whatever it is that you as an individual can do. Some have powers in different ways, but everybody has power. And the real key is not walking out of this room business as usual, but going out of this room saying, now I know something I didn't know before, and I'm going to do what I take that knowledge and use it in a positive way. Um, that's the global <laughs> response. But another is to take the Clean Water Act that we've got and make it work. We're, we're not really taking it as seriously, perhaps, as, as we need to. And realize the value, the real value of water and do more than we already have, whether it's on the books or not. And in a perverse kind of way, as it becomes a scarcity, it becomes an economic matter, and people start to pay attention more. Yeah. I just, the thing that always makes me smile about Aspen is you get 200 people that turn up a Friday night to talk about this. And And you, so in a funny kind of way, it's preaching to the choir. So, and I think it's a great question to close on. Well, but if, if we don't go out and take action. And that's, no. and that's the point. So and I think. Uh, sorry, just to, to also interject specifically, uh, the Clean Water Act is still there, uh, but there was a, a Supreme Court decision that uh, redefined it to only apply to navigable waterways. Right. So that's, it's, it's still there, it's just under mine, sorry. So I, the point I was gonna make was that the world's bigger than the US, uh, and the advice that I've heard when asking this question is, um, a great starting point as you look around the world is, how do you make water part of constitutions? How do you make access to fresh water an inalienable right? Because in many parts of the world, you don't have access to clean, clean drinking water. And until it becomes constitutionalized, so I understand your question on Freshwater Act here and how do you expand it beyond navigable water, but in many parts of the world, particularly in Africa and many parts of Latin America, until it becomes an expectation that citizens can enjoy, it's really hard to know where it, to where to begin. And I, I would, I think advocacy around that would be a great, would be a great starting point. Like the air you breathe. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it, there's nothing more basic. So fundamental. So. I'd like to thank the panelists and I'd like to inter uh, introduce uh, Keith again.